Good morning and welcome back to Unwritten. I am so excited to introduce today's guest, Dr. Thomas Telfer. He is a professor at Western University of the Faculty of Law in London, Ontario, and he has published widely in the fields of bankruptcy and legal history. Professor Telfer also has an interest in mindfulness education. In 2017, he introduced a highly successful non-credit mindfulness course to first-year Western law students, and the following year, he received the Leadership and Wellness Award of Recognition, which recognizes Western faculty members who promote the mental health of their students. He has recently been awarded a three-year teaching fellowship at Western to develop mindfulness and mental health education initiatives. In the fall of 2019, Professor Telfer offered mindfulness in the legal profession as a new upper-year academic credit course at Western Law. He is a frequent speaker on mindfulness and mental health. Professor Telfer has facilitated mindfulness workshops for lawyers, judges, professors, and students. He has led mindfulness seminars for the Law Societies of Ontario, Saskatchewan, Newfoundland and Labrador, and the Legal Education Society of Alberta. Stories about his mindfulness work have appeared in Canadian Lawyer and on podcasts and on CBC Radio. I'm very, very excited to welcome Dr. Thomas Telfer to today's podcast, and I hope that you enjoy our conversation. So good morning. Thank you everyone for being here with me today on Unwritten. I'm very excited to be here with Professor Thomas Telfer of um, Western Law. And the first question I'm going to lead for him is what led you, um, Professor Telfer, to become a professor after practicing law? And can you take us through your journey to practicing law? Sure. Uh, well, just first of all, let me thank you for the invitation to appear on your podcast. And uh, in terms of the, the answer, um, what led you to become a professor? Both my parents were teachers, my mother and father. My mother taught in the primary system and my father taught in the secondary system. And I wanted to follow them into the teaching profession. So here's a little known secret that I don't share with many people. I actually applied to Teachers College and did not get in. So wow. I applied, so yeah, I didn't get in. So I applied to law school hoping to one day become a professor and I gained admission to Western law and studied there for several years. And I always enjoyed research during my undergraduate studies and during law school. And I wanted to pursue research more in depth so after practicing law for a brief period, I decided to pursue graduate studies and I completed a master's of law at Duke University and doctoral studies at the University of Toronto. And being professor has been very rewarding because it's allowed me to combine my passion for research and teaching in the same job. That is incredible. And thank you for sharing that. It not it crazy how... You, you always, you know, those things that don't work out the way they're supposed to sometimes end up leading you to exactly where you're supposed to be. 
And what did you have an idea of even what kind of grades you wanted to teach when you thought you wanted to become a teacher? Or are you kind of happy that you're now teaching um, university students? Yeah, my original idea was to teach in the secondary system, but I'm very happy that I've been able to teach law students. Uh, it's been very rewarding. Law students are very engaged in their studies. They care about their studies and uh, they're very passionate about their their studies. And so it's it's been very rewarding to teach in the law program. That's incredible. And before you went into teaching and um, as a professor, did you practice law before that? And what did you find the difference between practicing law and teaching law? Yeah, so after law school, I articled um, here in London with a local firm and then practiced with them briefly, really enjoyed it. And uh, my field of practice was in the area of bankruptcy law and uh, creditors remedies and really developed a passion for that. And that's ultimately what I um, ended up focusing my research on was on was on bankruptcy law. Uh, and the other thing that I was passionate about was history because my undergraduate degree was in history. And during my undergrad, I took a course in legal history. I pursued legal history in law school and graduate studies. And so I was able to combine my passion for bankruptcy law and legal history in my my in my research uh the practice of law was was is very different from being a professor uh practice of law you're very um driven by the the client's needs whereas being a professor i was able to uh direct my own research in terms of the areas that i was interested but there there's definitely an overlap because i'm giving students skills that they can use when they get out into practice in in the legal profession themselves. That, yeah, that is incredible. And thank you for distinguishing the difference. And I think that you're ending on giving students the skills to transition into their own, own practices and their own jobs is a great um, lead into my next question um, with, with basically mindfulness, mental illness, and what you do teach to your students. And I have heard you speak before, and I know in hearing you speak about your journey with mental illness, I was wondering if you could take us through your journey um, and help us to understand when you first recognized when you were experiencing a mental illness, and how did you come to be able to share your story publicly? Yeah, the thank you for asking that question. And the journey was not easy at times and sometime i and for some time i believe the stigmatizing myths and stereotypes about mental mental illness at one time i was unable to speak or even seek help about my illness and those stigmatizing myths are still with us today the notion that mental health is a weakness or it's something that you can just get over by trying harder at one time I believe those myths, but I no longer believe them. And my first encounter with mental illness occurred when I was a young lawyer. Not long after I had been called to the bar, I approached my family doctor and tried to explain to him that I was not feeling well, but I really couldn't put my finger on what could be possibly wrong. 
And after the consultation, my doctor concluded that I was likely dealing with depression and he recommended medication. But I recall leaving very abruptly announcing that it wasn't true, that I wasn't dealing with depression. I was in actual denial. I felt the guilt and shame associated and associated mental illness with a weakness. Unfortunately, at the time, I believed society's messages about mental illness. Fortunately, that depressive episode did not last long, but it would later resurface in my time as a professor at Western University. And you ask about how I was able to speak publicly and a decision to share my own personal story about mental health was not an easy one because of the stigma that I've mentioned. In 2016, I was approached by two doctors and they asked me to appear in a video promoting the Zero Suicide Initiative at St. Joseph's Healthcare. The goal of that initiative at St. Joe's was to reduce to zero the number of suicides among patients being treated for mental health issues. And zero is really the only acceptable number. They told me that by participating in the video, it would help me break down stigma and also give people hope. And you watch the video, you see family members appearing, holding a photo of a loved one that had died by suicide. It's a really difficult video to watch and it's very moving. I can't imagine the pain of those families. And I appear in the video at the end holding my own photo as I'm a survivor of two suicide attempts. Now, it was not an easy decision to appear in that video. The video debuted in front of a thousand people at the St. Joseph's Healthcare Foundation Breakfast of Champions and was posted online. And when it was posted online, there was really no turning back. And I've continued to speak publicly about my story. And the video and the online story um, that St. Joe's posted created an overwhelming supportive reaction from former students, friends, and family. And many former students reached out to me to share their own stories of their own struggles with mental health. In particular, two former students contacted me and told me that they were survivors of suicide attempts. Wow. Was- that that yeah. that is very almost makes you speechless truly how important again these these initiatives are for promoting um being very open and vulnerable to the people around you because truly that is one of the things that um and like seeking help takes a lot of vulnerability and strength so Thank you so much for being, again, being here to share your story um, with mental illness and also for taking that, taking that initial step, um, you know, years ago to creating a better environment within London and, and beyond. Thank you. And it's been very rewarding because every time I speak, I always receive feedback from audience members who are who are dealing with their own mental illness. And it really helps open up a dialogue. We need to be more open and discuss mental health issues in our community. Truly. 
And so another question for a follow-up on that was when you were struggling with your mental health and your mental illness, who, who did you feel you could go to for support at the time? Was there, was there anyone in particular that you found, um, gave you the most support? Yeah. Now, as I just mentioned, when I first reached out for help, I rejected that help and, and, uh, didn't seek, uh, help for some time. Fortunately, that initial depressive episode didn't last that long, but when my symptoms, eventually returned when I was a professor at Western, I turned to my wife for support and she was really instrumental in, in helping me through my journey. And she actually urged me to go back to my family doctor and seek further help. It, it's so important to establish communication with a trusted friend or family member to let them know how you're feeling. And they can, they, they, because they've been, they know you, they can notice whether in fact your mood has changed. I also sought help from Western's EAP program and the Law Society's member assistance program. Both programs offered excellent counseling services. Wow. Yes, I, I agree. The people around you, the clo- those closest to you are truly instrumental in, in that change. And when when you look back on your experience at that time, is there anything you wish you could have changed about your experiences when, when you look back? And do you think that your attitude to your own mental health has changed over time? Yeah, those are great questions. Um, well, the first thing I wish I had changed was not rejecting that initial diagnosis from the a uh, family doctor when I was a young lawyer. Um, and I thought it was something I could just deal with on my own. But truly, you really need to seek help, professional help, if you're struggling with a mental health issue. The other thing I wish I could change is, is how I was treated when I went to the emergency department at Victoria Hospital. I should say I currently have excellent access to specialists and a therapist and a therapist but it was a long journey to get this access. I'm receiving great care and it's been many years now since I've had a depressive episode. Now, when I'm speaking publicly and using PowerPoint, I often share a slide with a headline from the Toronto Star that reads something like, living with a mental health condition is one thing, navigating the mental health care system is another. And at times it was difficult to navigate the mental health care system. And there's so much demand for mental health care services that at times the system cannot cope. Yes, I. that, that is something that within my own um, mental health and mental illness journey um, have found the the same thing and is at times again when you're navigating that system it can be very frustrating I I found that I would get very frustrated um, even just having to wait and I've done some research um, even for actually a project this year at Ivy and even for young children and youth, uh, there are some some people who wait up to two years to see, see a mental health professional. So, as as you said, it's um, 
dealing with a mental illness or mental health and then navigating that the system are again two very different things which i appreciate you sharing i i will have to look at that at that article because it is it's very very true yeah and thank you for sharing your your own story in terms of your your own journey and let me just follow up and answer your question has your attitude to your mental health changed over time and it has the belief that mental health was a weak. I believe mental health was a weakness when I had my first admission to a mental health care facility. I told my wife that no one could know that I was in hospital and I didn't want any visitors. I was terrified that my colleagues at Western would find out where I was. It was as if I was trying to make myself disappear Today, I have a different attitude. Now, during my last hospitalization many years ago, I think it was maybe six years ago, I emailed several colleagues at Western and told them that I was being treated for depression in hospital. And by email, I invited them to visit. Now, when I sent that email, I was unsure whether whether anyone would respond. In fact, they all responded and all came to visit me. And that leads to the question of why can't we speak about mental health? And our former Governor General, David Johnston, and former Dean at Western Law, in a book called The Idea of a Canada, Idea of Canada, Letters to a Nation, he wrote a letter to mental health care advocate Clara Hughes. And in that letter, he said this. Let me read for you the short quote. We must not maintain silence, not when, when, not when people are suffering, not when people's lives are at risk. We can improve lives and even save them if we simply make the effort. So that's the that end of the quote. Deeply touching, <laughs> deeply touching. And I just want to say, I think there's two aspects to silence that David Johnston is really talking about. First, our community must not be silent about mental health issues we must all speak out. And second, people suffer in silence, not seeking help because they fear that someone will discover their mental illness. Yeah, I I would agree with that. And I think that, again, the difference between you had said that through your last hospitalization, you did, you did make that step to reach out to colleagues and friends. And that that waiting and wondering is is often sometimes the hardest part in 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 reaching out and breaking that silence and i think it is so powerful that when you do break that silence and you do make the effort to reach out i would hope and through this example it, it's clear that people are willing to talk about it and willing to be there for support and it's truly that that stigma and the weight of that stigma that prevents a lot of support, I think, from happening. And that is a great example of, of showing that strength and moving past, moving past the fear in order to truly seek the help that you deserved at that point in time in your life. Thank you. I really appreciate those comments. Yeah, of course. And so to the, for the next question, um, when things were at their worst, what advice would you give to yourself knowing what you know now? Yeah, that's a great question. 
Um, the question reminds me of a song by George Harrison called All Things Shall Pass. And it, it reminds me that a crisis will end. And the advice I would give myself uh, is reach out for help earlier. It's okay to say that you have a, a mental illness and hope is around the corner even though in the midst of the crisis, it doesn't seem that hope is it possible, but it is. And talk is the most important thing. Talk to a friend or family member and don't be afraid to reach out for help early. Those are, those are wonderful pieces of advice. Thank you so much. And so in, um, in the spirit of connecting the, the last two topics, both um, being a professor and both being a mental health advocate, um, in becoming a professor, how do you perceive the progression of mental health resources for your students? There's been a tremendous change, but there's still work to be done. Um, I would say there's been a remarkable change in resources for students. So for example, when I was a law student, uh, mental health was never mentioned or talked about. And I, I attended law school between 85 and 88. I'm not sure I was even aware of the need to take care of my mental health when I was a student. Now, many law schools, including Western law, have on-site wellness counselors. Law schools are taking mental health of their students very seriously. And these counselors simply did not exist when I was a student. And that's been a remarkable change. That is remarkable. And do you think you've also seen a change in how mental health and mental illness are discussed um, by your students, by staff, and even as like with as the university as a whole? Because you have you have seen you have been with Western for for a while and have transitioned from being a student to being a professor. Yeah, I think students are much more willing to discuss mental health issues. It's more open today, although it could be better. Um, and as I mentioned, when I share my story, I often receive emails from students who detail their own struggles with mental health. And in my own mindfulness course, I spend an entire class on the state of mental health and the legal profession. Unfortunately, the legal profession is at higher risk than the general population for depression, anxiety, substance use, abuse, and suicide. And during my class, students engage in the discussion of why the legal profession encounters these problems, and we also discuss solutions. That is, that's fascinating. And um, it's actually really interesting. I'm going to share a, a personal anecdote here, but um, both my I have an uncle and two cousins who are in the practice of law and I was I'm quite close with um all of them and I I was just on a phone call yesterday and they were asking me how how the podcast was going and I say well actually I'm I'm going to be speaking to a professor of law at Western and he goes, oh my gosh, that's so cool. That's, that sounds really interesting. What, what are you going to talk? What are you going to talk about? And I, I said, oh, I'm, we're going to talk about mindfulness and mental health. And I think his jaw dropped. He goes, 
I don't even think those two things seem related. <laughs> um, and so as I think that that was a very a firsthand experience and how, as you mentioned, it it is a very high stress, um, high stress, it can be a high stress job. And I think it's very powerful that you're trying to implement this now for students as they enter enter that practice in order to reduce that because clearly a lot of people even those who who are in the practice of law um even have a hard time seeing how how they relate and so i think it, it it's truly amazing that you have been able to implement that into the teachings at western thank you and so, again, talking about students, um, what else do you think needs to be done in order to maximize support for current and future students? I think mental health education is key. Uh, so, for example, in our orientation week, we bring in uh, someone who's a counselor for lawyers, and we have a whole session on mental health um, for students to make them aware of the um, the stresses of the legal profession that they will be facing. Um, but I think, you know, orientation session is a good opportunity, but there needs to be more than just a mandatory orientation session. Continuing workshops throughout the year are helpful. But I also think it needs to start before students actually hit university and mental health education has to start earlier in secondary schools. Yes, I, I definitely agree with that. Again, connecting that to um, even a project that I did this this year for within Ivy. It, luckily, we, we were able to take... Um, basically create our own, I guess, our own project for a communications course. And again, as I mentioned, I, um, I'm quite passionate about um, eating disorders and disordered eating based on my own personal experiences and my background um, pre, pre going to, into business school was nutrition and dietetics. So it's something that's very, um, something that I'm very prominent. And again, the the thing about, I guess, mental health and mental illness, or even with eating disorders is um, prevention. Um, and instead of like preventative, almost medicine versus reactive medicine. And I think it's very powerful, you know, instead of trying to kind of put a bandaid over a bullet hole, almost is teaching students um, and youth early, so that you know, when when they get to university age and or adulthood, it's it's a lot easier to talk about and um, have people express truly what they're going through. Um, and again, going into that, how how do you think that COVID nineteen, especially in this day and age for students, um, has had an impact on the mental health of our community? And do you have any advice for how to deal with life in this um, COVID-19 world? Because that's, that's very, very um, prominent and it's very real for us right now. Yeah, January 2022 is, is, is not going to be an easy month. And Omicron has really um, had a significant impact. It, it, it's, it's the most difficult wave that we've experienced. And uh, when COVID first ar arrived in, in 2020, um, the Globe and Mail had an article and the headline read, 
a coronavirus pandemic may spark an increase in mental health struggles that could last years. Uh, that was 2020. And then last year, the Globe ran a headline with something like, people are at the point of emotional exhaustion, why white collar workers are hitting the pandemic fatigue wall. And that was before Omicron. And if we were fatigued last year, we're certainly more fatigued and more anxious now that we have Omicron. And last fall, it looked like that we were learning to live with COVID-19 with concerts returning and live sporting events returning. And then Omicron has hit. And throughout the pandemic, uh, it has had an impact on everyone's mental health. The Mental Health Commission of Canada recognized that the pandemic has created disruptions in our lives that can cause feelings of stress and anxiety. And these feelings of stress and anxiety are caused by our fight, flight, or freeze response in our brains. We all share a common brain and these reactions are normal. And according to the Mental Health Commission, here's what you might experience if you're feeling stressed or anxious. Fear or constant worry, anger or being easily irritated, difficulty sleeping, difficulty concentrating, struggling with decisions and consuming alcohol, cannabis, or other substances more than usual. So that's what you might be feeling stressed or anxious. And so what can we do during this pandemic to deal with stress and anxiety? And here's recommendations from the Mental Health Commission. First of all, stay active and keep yourself busy with activities you enjoy. Continue to stay connected with friends and family while still practicing that physical distancing. Find balance by staying informed, but know when to take a break from COVID-19 news and topics. And if you turn on the news, it's all bad news right now. So just have a balance. And then be kind to yourself. This is a difficult time and you're doing your best to manage a challenging situation. Perhaps most important is to reach out for help, talk to a family member or friend and seek professional support if needed. And then the last recommendation of the Mental Health Commission is take care of your body by eating and sleeping well, exercising and meditating. Wow, thank you. That I think hopefully is very just to be reminded of what things you can do for yourself um, in a stressful time I think is very very important and thank you for that reminder or even little I guess nugget of knowledge for our listeners and that also again leads us into this next question to about mindfulness and your um, and being a professor and so what what drove you to create your own course about mindfulness for students and what what gap did you feel needed to be needed to be filled i guess um in by creating this course yeah so the the state of the legal profession in terms of the mental health issues in the legal profession really drove me to look for techniques to help students that would prepare them for the practice of law. And the Law Society of Ontario actually recommends 
mindfulness practices as a strategy to enhance mental well-being. But I only discovered mindfulness relatively late in my career. I've been an academic for about 25 years, working large in the field of bankruptcy law, and mindfulness is only a recent discovery. Mindfulness found me. I did not seek it out. In 2014, I found myself in the hospital being treated for depression and anxiety. I decided to admit myself into an eight-week program for depression at an Ontario hospital. And on arrival, each patient received a schedule for the eight weeks. Most items on the list were things like educational workshops, group therapy, recreational activities, all things that I expected. But on the schedule, I noticed one thing that was puzzling, and that was mindfulness. I never heard of such a concept. I soon discovered that mindfulness class involves sitting in a circle and breathing. I completely rejected the concept, wondering how I was going to get better by simply breathing. I actually thought it was a waste of time because it did not involve doctors or medication. But over the eight weeks, I slowly began to see the benefits. And by the end, I was practicing mindfulness on a daily basis using the Headspace app. Mm -hmm. And after being discharged, I returned to work, but I slowly began to drift away from my mindfulness practice. And in 2016, I again found myself hospitalized, but this time it was after a suicide attempt. And I again noticed that in hospital, mindfulness classes were an offer in this hospitalization. And I wondered where I might have been if I hadn't abandoned my mindfulness practice. So when I returned to work again, I made two decisions. One, I was going to make mindfulness a feature of my life. And two, I was determined to bring mindfulness to Western University Law School. I thought if I could just reach a small group of students, it just might improve the quality of their life for, for our students. So in 2017, I introduced a non-credit mindfulness course. And in 2019, I launched an upper year credit course. And it's had a tremendous impact on students and mindfulness will set them up for success in professional life because the courses incorporate skills that are relevant to the legal profession, emotional intelligence, mindful listening, negotiations, and mindfulness and legal ethics. That is, that is incredible. And so when you talk about, you know, your, has I guess your hesitation at first about what is mindfulness, can you explain to, to us what, what exactly mindfulness is and what the benefits of mindfulness can be for those of us who might not know? Sure. So mindfulness, great definition by John Kabat-Zinn, mindfulness is paying attention to the present moment on purpose without judgment. Really, it's that present moment awareness. We're often thinking of our to-do list, and that's if we're on our to-do list in our mind, we're living in the future, which can create a source of anxiety. Or we might be thinking about something that didn't go well yesterday. You're in the past 
or the future and you're not in the present and we miss so much of our the present moment in our daily lives so mindfulness is a skill of present moment awareness and studies show that there are many benefits to um, mindfulness it can improve rates of depression and anxiety and beyond the mental health benefits, studies also show that a practice of mindfulness can make you more focused and have better concentration. It can also make you more resilient, which is so important at this time of COVID-19. And students have shared with me that mindfulness has made an impact on their personal and academic lives. That that is incredible. I was just about to ask if uh, if there was a common outcome most students leave your course with. If there's almost a top piece of information you think that most students um, grab hold of, or you wish that they would leave that leave your course with. Yeah. So many students report less distraction while studying. Um, this actually, the students tell me that they're spending less time on their, say, reading a chapter uh, because they're not as distracted. They're not checking their phone while they're reading the chapter. Uh, checking your phone, obviously, is a source of distraction. It's going to take you longer to read something. And students tell me that they can actually read a page and not absorb anything because they're distracted. But with mindfulness, they are more focused. And we spend an actual we actually spend an entire class on focus and concentration because mindfulness can help with cognitive ability. And I've received messages from former students that the course has helped with their mental health. Two former students recently emailed me to say that the course has reached, has helped them become better lawyers. And in terms of the top piece of information I'd like students to leave with, is that the key message of mindfulness is that awareness of the present moment. And we can bring awareness to anything we do, present moment awareness to anything that we do, whether that's studying, writing, even walking. We can have a mindful walk or even making coffee. So often we're on autopilot and we miss so much of our daily lives. How often do we go for a walk from A to B arrive at our destination with no memory of what we saw in the journey. That's because our mind is off reviewing our to-do list and you simply aren't noticing what you're seeing or hearing during your walk. And there's a real myth about mindfulness that it's all about meditation. And as Sharon Salzberg says, we don't practice meditation to get better at meditation. We practice meditation to get better at life. So practicing meditation will help our ability to notice the present moment and get us off of autopilot because we miss so much on autopilot. And let me give you a great example of autopilot. A lawyer who was a mother told me that while reading her daughter's favorite story, a story that became so familiar to the mother that she could read the story to her daughter on autopilot, her mind wandering to her to-do list and missing out on the experience of reading to her daughter. We really miss so much on autopilot. 
That that is so true. And so to finish off this episode today, again, thank you so much for sharing and providing such um, wonderful insights into both your life, what it is like to both teach and also um, provide wonderful information on um, mental illness and mental health. I was wondering if in the spirit of practicing mindfulness, if you could end end our episode today um, with a guided meditation. Sure, I'd be happy to. So I'm going to lead you through, lead everyone through a guided meditation, and I'm going to ask you to focus on your breath. Focus your attention on your breath. And when your mind wanders away from your breath, simply bring your attention back to the breath. And when distracted, and you'll likely be distracted, just be patient and kindly bring your attention back to your breath. If you're focused on your breath, you'll be in the present, not in the future or the past. If you notice you're distracted, you're actually engaging in mindfulness. So here we go with this brief guided meditation. Sit in a comfortable position and allow both soles of your feet to connect to the floor. Rest your hands on your thighs and let your shoulders drop. Gently close your eyes or look for a reference point somewhere on the floor where you can return your eyes when they get distracted. And now Let your spine grow tall and noble like the trunk of a tall tree. Now take a moment to bring your attention to notice how your body feels as you focus on the flow of your in-breath and focus on the flow of your out-breath. You don't need to breathe in any special way. That's because your body knows how to breathe. Simply bring your attention to where you notice your breath in your body, the base of the nostrils, or the rise and fall of your belly and chest. Simply notice each breath coming into the body with an in-breath and leaving the body with an out-breath. Breathing in and breathing out. Now, if you notice your mind is caught up in thoughts, emotions, or body sensations, 
and you're distracted away from your breath, know that this is normal. Just simply notice what's distracting you and gently let it go by redirecting your attention back to the flow of your in-breath and the flow of your out-breath. Breathing in and breathing out. Allow each in-breath to be a new beginning and each out-breath to be a letting go. When you're ready, open your eyes and slowly bring your attention back to your surroundings. And that's the guided meditation. Thank you so much. I already feel more calm as we speak. But again, that brings us to the end of today's episode. Thank you so much for listening. And thank you so much, Professor Telfer, for taking the time to be with me today and to give everyone um, just a little bit of your wisdom. Thank you very much for having me. I really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you. Today is where your begin in the rain.